This morning we'll be looking at the end of chapter 22 of Acts and the beginning of chapter 23. So if you would turn in your Bibles with me to Acts 22, verse 30. We pick up our text as Paul is standing before the council in Jerusalem. He's already been in the temple and been dragged out of the temple and beaten and been rescued by Roman soldiers and almost whipped. And now he's about to face the Sanhedrin. Before we read our text, though, let's go to the Lord and ask for his blessing upon his word. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would take this, your word, and that you would use it powerfully in our lives. We ask, O Lord, that you would use it to teach us more of Jesus. That you would use it to bring us closer together. And that you would use it to make us more like the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask all of this in Christ's name. Amen. Now if you please give attention to the reading of God's holy, inerrant, sufficient, and authoritative word. Acts chapter 22, verse 30. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him before them. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law you order me to be struck? Those who stood by said, Would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope of the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit. But the Pharisees acknowledged them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply. We find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also 
in Rome. May God bless the hearing of His Word. We continue now looking at Paul as he goes before various bodies, tribunals, as he is on what seemed to be a series of trials. And as we look at the text this morning, I think it's a good opportunity for us to think about our own standing, how we stand before others, how we stand before ourselves, and how we stand before the Lord Jesus Christ. Because you see, Paul here is on trial, not for any crime he has committed. We know that that accusation was a false one. If it had been true, they would have even pressed it here. But rather, Paul is on trial because he professes the Lord Jesus Christ. It's hard to think of it in our day and age. But Paul is on trial for his life yet again for doing something as simple as what Miss Helen did this morning. Standing for Jesus. So what I would like us to do in hopes of helping us to frame our own lives before others and before God is to look at Paul as he stands before three sets of people, as it were. The first is we will see Paul before himself. You see, that's where we often begin. As we stand before ourselves and our own conscience in what we hold to be true. Then secondly, we will see Paul before men. And we will see that Paul is not treated with all fairness and justice. And then finally, we will see Paul's true hope as he stands before Jesus. Paul before himself, before men, and before Jesus. Well, let's begin then by looking at Paul as he looks upon his own life, as he stands in his own integrity before himself. Now, remember the context in which this trial is occurring. Paul is here in this very spot because he was trying to help the brothers. That's how it all started, remember? He came into Jerusalem bringing gifts. And he was given the cold shoulder. And told that what he really needed to do to help was to act a little bit more like a Jew. And Paul, seeking to find unity in the church, seeking to help brothers in Jerusalem, agreed to their plan. To support the four men who were taking a vow, to go into the temple. And as he goes in, that plan goes awry. Because you see, they around him... The unbelieving Jews accuse him of bringing a Gentile into the temple. And so Paul is attacked, nearly beaten to death. The only reason that he survives is because, you'll recall, the Romans have a small garrison right on top of the temple. And they rush down, clear the crowd, and literally carry Paul over their heads to safety. And then it's a little bit of out of the frying pan into the fire because... Paul's safety is to be strung up, to be beaten nearly to death. But you'll recall that Paul, in his calm trust upon the Lord and his providence, looks at the Roman jailers and he says, is this what you're supposed to do to a Roman citizen? They, of course, become so fearful that they let him go. 
And now the Romans don't know what to do. And so they figure the only way to get to the bottom of this is to bring Paul before the Sanhedrin. And so what we see here is a bit like a pre-trial hearing. This is not an official assembly of the Sanhedrin. Actually, the tribune, the Roman tribune, calls them into session in what we believe is the basement of the fortress where the Romans are housed. It tells us a little bit about the authority here that the Romans have at this time. But this is a hearing to find out if there should actually be a trial. Now, some of you have experience in law and you understand exactly what I'm saying. For those of you that don't, let me give perhaps a bit more home-like illustration. This is like, kids, when there has been something that has gone on wrong in the house and there is a sit-down meeting at the kitchen table with mom to decide if we're going to bring this up when dad gets home. It's sort of a precursor to find out if there's enough guilt that we actually need to delve into this. So Paul hasn't actually been accused yet. He's not actually on trial. But as you can tell from the illustration I just gave, Paul is in trouble. His options really aren't very good. As a matter of fact, the worst thing that could happen to him here is that he gets released into the crowd and they probably assassinate him. So what does Paul do in this? Paul stands in his own integrity and he does something that we might not expect. He does something that we might not think we are able to do. Paul does not back down. You see this? Look at verse 1 of chapter 23. Imagine what Paul has gone through. He's probably still got painful scars from being beaten. He's probably tired. You don't sleep well at night in a jail. And he comes out And Luke tells us he looks intently at the council. Now, this is Luke's word not only for staring someone down, but it's Luke's word to let us know something important is going to happen. Two other examples of this we see in Acts. You remember when there was the cripple who asked for money from Peter, and Peter looked at him intently and then healed him. You remember there was the sorcerer in Acts 13 that was seeking to blaspheme the living God. And Paul looked at him intently. And then he was struck mute. So here Luke wants us to know that Paul is not backing down at all. That Paul has come here to defend himself. He is standing in his own integrity. And then he does something else that's a little bit more subtle. Do you see what his first word of his speech is? It's brothers. Now I want you, if you have the opportunity, to look back just a little bit more to the beginning of chapter 22 and see how that speech begins. It begins, brothers and fathers. Now, there's a little thing going on here, I think, but Paul is, I believe, a former member of this council early in Acts, and Paul is looking at them intently, and he is telling them that he is their equal. He says, brothers, I'm going to tell you where I stand in my integrity. And I think this is an important thing for us to remember as Christians, that we are not to be intimidated by hostility from unbelievers. Some of you have recently graduated from high school. 
And you need to hear from God's word that you should not be intimidated by an unbeliever simply because he has the letters PhD after his or her name. You can stand in your integrity because of what Jesus has done and because the Bible is true. You don't need to be intimidated at work because others think you're less of a person because you pray during your lunch hour or because you lead a local Bible study. Don't be intimidated by unbelievers. Because you see, in all of this confrontation, Paul is standing upon his conscience. He says, brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience to this day. He has lived all of his life before God. Now that in itself is an accomplishment to think about because so many people do not think of living their life before God. Even Christians. When we sin and think God doesn't see it, we're not living our life before God. When we fail to stand for the Lord Jesus and think He does not hear that, we're not living our life before God. When we live a life where we think God is vaguely out there, somewhere, good enough for other people to believe in, but we can make our own way. We are not living our life before our Creator. And you see, Paul can find hope. Paul can find courage because he stands before God at all times. This is Paul's worldview. If you want to know what a worldview is, this is Paul's worldview. That all of life, Waking, sleeping, working, playing, reading, teaching is lived before God. There is no compartment in which you can be where God is not found. Do you live your life today in light of eternity? There's been much that's been humorous about yet another false prediction of the end of the world. But I wonder if you've noticed in the articles, in the internet stories, a mocking, a, a delight in the fact that this is not the end of the world because it will never come. Peter tells us this, that scoffers say all the time, the world just continues on. You see, it's not just that yesterday wasn't the end of the world. There are many who believe that there is no end of the world. When in reality, we need to be prepared for eternity every day. It does not take a prediction for your world or my world to end. We need to live life in light of eternity. And that's what Paul is saying when he's saying that his conscience is clear before God. He's not saying he's perfect. He's certainly not saying he is sinless because he has lived a life of murder and deception. He's saying that as he stands before them now, his conscience is clear before God because of what Jesus Christ has done. Do you need a clear conscience? Do you have those moments in the quiet of the afternoon where bad memories flood back on you? Things you've said, things you've done, and then they go away for a while, and maybe a few months later they come back again? If you want a clear conscience, if you want to stand with a mind that is clear before God, you must rest on the Lord Jesus Christ. That was Paul's resting. That was Paul's hope. You see, you can have a true and clear conscience, but only 
from Christ. So Paul stands before himself clear that he has walked before God, that he is right with God. He is confident in himself, and that gives him the ability to stand before men. Because you see, this is not an easy thing to do. He is going to face here injustice. Now, I want you to just think a bit about injustice in your own life to put yourself in Paul's shoes. Perhaps, kids, it's the time in which you know your siblings have done something wrong and mom or dad blame you. And you you can't get them to understand what's going on, maybe because you're upset and, and you can't explain yourself, but you know it's just not right, it's not fair. That's a scary time, isn't it? Perhaps... It's an opportunity in which someone has said things about you, accused you of things, and you feel like you can never get your name back. You see, here is a corrupt council that is seeking the death of Paul. He knows it. There is no attempt here to find the truth. Paul knows that even though the Romans want to find the truth, the Sanhedrin do not. They're out here just for blood. And this is different than the mob that he just faced. You see, this is a group that is supposed to be governed by law and by God's word. We'll see that in a minute. This is a place where justice should be found. Have you ever been in a spot where not only you've been unjustly accused, but in a place where perhaps you or someone you love should have See, receive justice. You expect justice. It's one of the reasons why when we hear a news report of a corrupt judge or a corrupt police captain or sheriff, we are so outraged because these people are supposed to protect us. They're supposed to stand for justice. And that's what the Sanhedrin were supposed to do. But instead, the Sanhedrin are led by a man named Ananias. Now, I have to tell you just a bit about him so you understand what's going on here. Ananias was among the worst men to ever hold the office of high priest. Ananias started a rebellion against Rome several years before this. And the Romans caught him and couldn't find enough to convict him. And so he escaped punishment. And what he did as a regular matter was, as the tithes came into the temple... He stole them for himself. He persecuted faithful Jews. And then he began, because he saw the politics of it, to side with Rome. So much so that a few years after this, he will be dragged out of the equivalent of a Roman sewer and killed by Jewish rebels. Short version, he is not a very nice guy. Imagine that this is the man in charge of the council who will decide whether you live or die. And so Paul begins his speech. Now, we can't say too much about what Paul means when he talks about having a good conscience because he's interrupted. He only gets one sentence out. And then, like some kind of mafioso, Ananias gestures or says something to the men near Paul, and they strike him on the mouth. Now, if you have in mind the kind of striking that you see in a film 
where a young woman slaps a man. You need to get that out of your mind. Because the word here is more associated with a blow. So you need to be thinking either clenched fist or club. This is no love tap. Imagine Paul is completely not expecting it. Have you ever been hit when you're not expecting it? Sucker punched? That's the definition of this here. He's talking, and someone next to him cold cocks him, just lays off and punches him. This is contrary to the very law of God, because Deuteronomy 25 tells Israel that you are not to strike an unconvicted man. Now, that gives us some context to what Paul does here. Because Paul is not quite out of character, but just a little bit. The Paul who calmly says to the Roman soldiers, um, do you really think this is a good idea to whip a Roman citizen? The Paul who calmly says to the tribune, may I speak a few words, is not found here. This Paul is angry. We know it because later they ask him if he is okay with reviling the high priest. To revile someone is to taunt them, to say bad things in anger about them. And so Paul, if you'll forgive the turn of phrase, loses it here. Have you ever had that experience? Especially when you've been really hurt. You see, in a way I'm thankful that Paul responds this way. Not because I'm encouraging you to emulate it but because it reminds us that Paul is a real person. You know, sometimes we can think when we hear Paul calmly talking to soldiers that he's some kind of special Bible person and his standards are just for him. They're not for us. But here Paul reminds us that he's in a way just like us. He doesn't like being treated unfairly. He doesn't like being unjustly accused. He doesn't like being hit for no reason. You don't either, do you? whether that hit is physical or emotional. And so Paul reacts by saying, God strike you too, you whitewashed wall. Now what does that mean? Perhaps you, like me, are thinking of things like white-walled tires, you know, clean and, and nice looking. And what Paul is probably referring to is, in Ezekiel 13, shoddy, construction companies, if you would, shoddy builders would build bad, rotten walls, and in order to make them look good, they'd put white paint on them. So they would look better than they were. And someone would come up to that wall and lean on it, and they would fall over, because it was rotten. And you see, what Paul is really saying is, God smacked you too, you phony. You're not who you think you are. It reminds us that Paul is human. But that's all the more important because the next thing that comes reminds us of how we are to react in these situations. Because Paul not only reacts in anger, he then reacts by obedience, but obedience to God. Because you see, he is reminded that you don't speak this way of the high priest. And Paul, because he has a knowledge of God's word, remembers in his mind the Bible verse that he was taught in the equivalent of Sunday school. Exodus 22, 28. You shall not revile a leader of the people. You see, kids, those Bible verses that you remember, 
Those Bible verses you learn in Sunday school, they come back to help. There's a reason we do that. He remembers that and he realizes that even though Ananias is in the wrong, he, Paul must obey God. And so he says, I'm sorry. I didn't know it was the high priest. Now, commentators have a bit of fun with this. Some think it's because Paul has bad eyesight. You remember in Galatians, he says, I wrote in really big letters to you. And so Paul was squinting out there. I can't tell who that is. Others think it's sarcasm. Well, I didn't know high priests acted like that. Still others say that Paul very likely didn't recognize Ananias as the high priest because he hasn't been in Jerusalem for like 20 years. And when he was in Jerusalem, Ananias wasn't the high priest. I think the last is probably the best explanation because it fits in with Paul's general sense of humility and the fact that even though he is angry in an outburst, he immediately apologizes. And he doesn't apologize in the way so often we do. I'm sorry if you misunderstood what I said. Well, there's a good apology. It's a double whammy. If you had been brighter, you would have understood what I said. And then therefore, I wouldn't have had to apologize. You see, Paul immediately goes to God's word. He understands the importance of obeying God. And he follows God rather than his own desires. Now here's yet another really good application for children. You see, when your parents do something wrong, and here's a newsflash, children, your parents do sin. They don't give you a sinless card when you reach 18. When they sin, that is an opportunity for you to follow the Lord and His Word. Not your own desires to say, that's unfair, you shouldn't do that, you're wrong. This is an opportunity to obey the Lord and to honor your father and your mother. Paul gives us a perfect example of this. I mean, think of it, he was just socked in the mouth. And he's ready to obey God's word. This is because Paul is a man who is wise. He understands that there is life found in God's Word. But you see, Paul is not merely an academic theoretician because he's wise enough to understand what's going on in this council. Luke tells us he looks around, and you can almost imagine in, his, in your mind's eye, he sees, oh, there's Josephus. He's a Pharisee. Oh, and there's Malachi. He's a Sadducee. They don't like each other. Oh, and there's... Joseph, he's always in the middle, going back and forth. I know what I can do. I can divide and conquer. And so he uses his wisdom, and in the midst of all this danger, in the midst of all of this anxiety and violence, he says, brothers, it's because I'm a Pharisee that they're after me. You could just imagine the Pharisees looking, wait a minute, what do you mean? He's one of us, they're after him? Wait a minute, are they after us too? You can imagine the Sadducees. Well, I don't think we're after him for that, but you know, this resurrection stuff is bunk anyway. The Pharisees are always talking about angels this and spirits that. They're just fools. And you can imagine, it goes back and forth now, and Paul is kind of take a step back and let things take their course. Because you see, for him, the best thing that can happen is that he could escape with his own life. 
But in reality, he doesn't just do that as a ploy. There's something deeper here. Because do you see what he says? He says, brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to what? The hope of the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. Now, isn't that true? It's actually true. Because the reason that Paul is here is because he believes that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. And that because Jesus is risen, his people will be risen. And because of that, he has a people all over the earth. You see, Paul is using an opportunity here. He can't take five minutes without preaching the gospel. And he lays it all out for them. He says, that's why I'm here. Because of the gospel. Because of the hope that God has given to me. He says the resurrection is what is really important. So in the midst of standing before an unjust tribunal, facing death, being harmed, what is foremost in Paul's mind? How can I evangelize here? How can I bring some of these people who don't know Jesus to Jesus? Do you see how wise Paul is? Do you see how loving Paul is? Paul stands not only before himself and his own integrity, he stands before others, he stands before men in the integrity of the gospel, and he is not afraid to do so. Are you not afraid of that? Are you ready to stand before others and stand for the gospel, for the truth of God's word? Paul stands before himself, he stands before others. But most critically, Paul stands before Jesus. You see, what Paul has been doing here all the time is exactly what our Lord Jesus tells him in verse 11. As you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem. Paul stands before Jesus as one who testifies that Jesus Christ is God. That Jesus Christ is the Savior. That Jesus Christ is Lord. And he does so before an unbelieving crowd. He does so in front of Romans who don't understand what's going on and who, quite frankly, don't really care. The only thing the Tribune has his mind on is getting this problem off of his desk and onto somebody else's. But for Paul, it's an opportunity to preach the gospel. He does it in front of the Sadducees. Now, if you think the Pharisees are a tough crowd, I want you to understand this. Not once in all of the New Testament do we read of one Sadducee being converted. Not one. We know of Pharisees being converted. We're looking at one right now in Paul. But not one Sadducee has ever been converted, to our knowledge at least. So it is certainly not a common occurrence they are a proud group. They think that they hold all of the answers and that they don't need God, the afterlife, or anything else. But there's also Pharisees here. They think they know it all. And I want you to remember something else. It's not like this is the first time that someone has testified to them of Jesus. It's actually, quite frankly, the fifth time that someone has spoken to this council. First, it was our Lord Jesus Christ, and they killed him. Then it was Peter and John, and they tried to kill them. Then it was the apostles, and they threatened them. Then it was Stephen, 
and they killed him. And now it is Paul and they are trying to kill him. So I want you to understand two things from this. First of all, it is never too late to testify for Jesus. There is never you had your last chance to hear the gospel. We are called to always bring the gospel to others. But there's another truth here. If you are sitting here today and you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you're fuzzy on the details of what the cross means, if you're not sure why you should believe in Jesus, then this is yet another opportunity for the Lord to pursue you. You are not beyond knowing about Jesus. You are not beyond trusting Him and putting your faith in Him. Even men who are so hardened like the Pharisees and Sadducees hear from Paul. Well, Paul testifies as he stands before Jesus. But I think we also need to understand too that as he testifies, he perseveres before Jesus as well. You see, this is Paul's life. It is a consistent life. It is a theme of who he is. When Paul says, I have lived my life before God, it's a very interesting word. It's the same word that we get in Philippians 1.27, where Paul says that he has conducted his manner of life. And it's the same form of a word where Paul says, my citizenship is in heaven. You see, Paul is saying that he has lived his whole life, that he is a citizen of the kingdom. And that requires obedience, and that requires him to follow the Lord. Even in the midst of a very hard time like this, if we are honest, very few of us have faced the kind of difficulty and persecution that Paul faced here in Acts. That Paul persevered. Very few of us face that kind of persecution that our brothers and sisters in India, in Sudan, in China, that they experience. But they persevere. The call to you today is to persevere in following Jesus. As you stand before Him, to persevere. Well, you might ask then, in conclusion, how do I do this? How can I stand and persevere? It's so hard. How could Paul do this? He must have been a superhuman person. No. Paul was an ordinary person like you and me. But the way that Paul can stand and persevere, the reason that Paul can testify, the reason that Paul has integrity before God, before himself, and before men, is because Jesus is with him and has told him he will never leave him nor forsake him. Do you find it interesting that verse 11 follows all of this? After all of the hubbub, as Paul's perhaps sitting in his cell second-guessing himself, I should have done this. Maybe I shouldn't have gone to Jerusalem. Maybe I should have said fathers and brothers. Maybe I... Second-guessing himself, Jesus comes alongside Paul and he says those wonderful words. Take courage. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Jesus comes alongside of him. Just as he comes alongside of you. As you struggle in your marriage, Jesus comes alongside of you. As you struggle with illness, Jesus comes alongside of you. And he says, take courage. Now notice, he doesn't say to Paul, I'll make everything better, sweetie. 
I'll have ravens come and pick you up and fly you, whisk you away to safety, and you'll never have to worry about anything again. He actually says, what you're experiencing now, you're going to get some more of. But I'll be with you. And what Jesus teaches us is that it is better to live in the most miserable of circumstances with the greatest challenges without knowing where we will be tomorrow and have Jesus than to think we've got it all in control and we don't. Is that where you are today? In the midst of all this swirling around you, is Jesus with you? Do you feel his comfort? Do you know that he wants to bless you? That's where real hope is found. That's the hope of the resurrection. Paul believed it. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we thank you this morning, oh, Lord, that you have spoken to us through your servant Paul and your servant Luke. Lord, we ask that you would remind us this morning that we are never without hope. We are never alone when you are with us. Lord, please help us to be bold. Please help us to have a clear conscience. Please help us to stand and testify for you. We ask all of this in the magnificent name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you.